Good morning. Good to be with you all today. Welcome. We are in week two of our series in the book of Romans. Over the next 10 weeks, we are reconstructing uh, this very famous letter of Paul to the Roman Christians. Um, and we're going to be covering probably not the whole thing. I'm just going to spoil it for you right now, but maybe the first eight chapters. And then we may, because Christmas is going to interrupt us. And then um, <laughs> it, you know, it tends to come in same time every year. It shocks me too, but uh, it's coming and we'll, uh, we'll celebrate uh, Advent together and then um, perhaps come back to Romans after that. We'll see. Uh, what the future holds. But uh, in the meantime, we are reading Romans by uh, paying careful attention to this book, not just to the words in the book, but to the context in which those words are written, because both are important. Last week, we said that this is not primarily a book of theological one-liners to get certain about our belief systems not why Paul wrote it. It's a letter of peace that's written to a fractured church, Jews and Gentiles, who refuse to live in harmony with one another because one group, which Paul's going to call the weak, want to force the other group, which he will name the strong, to submit to Jewish laws and customs, things like dietary restrictions and religious calendars, etc., they want to submit this other group to these things, even though they are not ethnically Jewish, uh, because to them, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Once this group of Jewish believers held the power in the church of Rome, but now the Gentiles are the majorities, and this minority wants to go back to how things used to be. This is the context. And as I said Last week, this context and the conflict that arises out of it is what Paul is addressing with almost every line of this letter. It's inescapable. And what Paul is doing is he's giving them the good news of Jesus, what we call the gospel. He's eager to preach it to them because this gospel takes space for both groups to coexist and to love one another as a demonstration of God's righteousness, his ability to make things right again. Only together, Paul says, do these people reflect new creation. And so Paul is adamant that they learn how to get along. So if we don't keep this context front of mind, then the consequences are dire and tragic. We will see this ever so clearly today. So let's continue where we left off last week. We are in Romans 1, verse 18, and we're going to go to Romans 2, verse 4. This is what it says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. How's that for an opening? Who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, 
They neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. Romans 2, verse 1. See if you can detect a shift here. You therefore have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you pass judgment. You who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? This is a hard section. Paul categorically denounces passing judgment on others and he does so directly after the most judgmentally charged diatribe that he gives in any of his New Testament letters. He comes down hard on the wicked, the depraved, the gossips and the slanderers, the disobedient and the sexually perverted. Paul's repeated use of the word they feels uncomfortably sarcastic, does it not? Paul's allowed to say that gay people and disobedient children deserve death, but I'm not allowed to judge or I'm just as guilty? 
what in Caesar salad is going on in Romans 1 and 2? Mandy read that line last night. She goes, I can hear you saying it. Can we, can we hold these two very different passages together? Or we just stick chapter break in between and call it a day, family? Gird up your togas, friends, as we proclaim some good news. The good news that we proclaim today is that God is so committed to making peace in his people that he will lovingly and directly confront our biases and our prejudices. Because there is room for everyone in new creation, there is no room for judgmentalism. Today, we, are, we too are invited to compassionately reckon with our assumptions around who's bad and who's good, about who's in God's good graces and who's out, because family, all are subject to the kindness of the Lord. Let that kindness lead you to repentance and even to stand up for those who are judged unfairly for who they are. For this, this is what God does for us in his son, Jesus. Friends, I'm contending today that the end of Romans 1 can only, only be understood in light of the beginning of Romans 2. If you stick a chapter break in between those two things and read them as separate ideas, you will miss the point. In fact, I almost reversed the order so that we read chapter two before chapter one so that you could see it more clearly. I almost did that. I was reminded this week by a friend in group that there is, in fact, a therefore in between these two chapters. And we're supposed to ask, there you go. What is it there for? This little word links what comes before and what comes next. So what is that link? Well, in verses 18 to 32, it begins this way. And I tried to emphasize it for uh, the purpose of making a point. Verse 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And this is the beginning of Paul's condemnation or indictment against a group of people in which he goes on to talk about how the truth of God is exchanged for a lie and how the knowledge of God is plain to them, but they suppress it and they worship created things instead and how this leads to living a depraved life of wickedness. And in the end, those who follow this path deserve judgment and ultimately get death. You want to know a secret? This isn't the first letter that does this move. This isn't the first place where the truth is suppressed by a group of people and ultimately they get death for it. There's a Jewish text that was popular also in the first century called the Wisdom of Solomon. It's included in the Apocrypha if you have a copy of it and want to read it for yourself, but it's, it is a letter within a community of Jewish people written to combat Gentile influence of a pious and some might say fundamentalist Jewish community that had become increasingly inhospitable to outsiders. Particularly, chapters 13 and 14 of the Wisdom of Solomon get referred to by scholars as the decline of civilization. 
And in chapters 13 and 14, it outlines the idolatrous nature of non-Jewish people who suppress the truth about the knowledge of God because they want nothing less than to live in disobedience to God and self-autonomy. It skewers them as utterly evil and hopeless, detailing everything that's wrong and irredeemable about them wrapped up in a single stereotypical caricature. Scott McKnight, a New Testament scholar, says this about Paul's words in Romans 1 and how they relate to the wisdom of Solomon. He says, first century Jews knew this description. They believed this description. They repeated this description. This was the stereotyped immoral pagan idolater. Paul's language is not identical to, but close enough that it is reasonable to think Paul is either using wisdom of Solomon or is dependent on the kind of tradition at work in that text. Now, why then? Why? Why would Paul utilize the wisdom of Solomon, a book that is loaded with anti-Gentile tropes? And why would he do it right before a text where he calls on the Jewish portion of a community to not pass judgment? Do you see it yet? This is Paul, a Jew himself, articulating the stereotypical perspective of many of his own people towards Gentiles. This is the key. Paul is not quoting the wisdom of Solomon because he necessarily agrees with its argument or because all people in all generations fit the description of the decline of civilization. He's doing it because he's using this text rhetorically to get the Jewish Christians that he is writing to, that he is concerned about, to reckon with their own judgmentalism. He's using it to convict his own ethnic community for their posture towards the they that they consider damned and excluded. Can you see it yet? Paul is arousing their judgmentalism. He's playing to it. He's leading them down a road so that they're like, yeah, that's what they're like. And then he does an about face on them and says, oh, Oh, but you, let's talk about you. He creates a stereotypical caricature of what Gentiles are supposedly like so that he can reflect the focus back on them and confront them for being judgmental towards their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, in the immortal words of Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. It's a bait and switch. Paul is becoming a judgmental person to reach the judgmental people of Rome, to wake them up that by all possible means he might save them from a life enslaved to their judgmentalism. The good news that we proclaim today, family, is God is so committed to making peace in his community, that he will lovingly and directly confront our biases and prejudices. 
Because there is room for everyone in new creation, there is no room for judgmentalism. Today, we are invited to compassionately reckon with our own assumptions around who's in and who's out, who's good, who's bad, who keeps the law and who doesn't. Friends, all are subject to the kindness of the Lord. Let that kindness lead you to repentance so that even you might stand up for those who are judged unfairly for who they are. This is what God does for us in his son Jesus, is it not? Receive it today. Now, before you stone me as a heretic, because I just did some uh, exegetical gymnastics with Romans 1. Some of you are really uncomfortable with what I said. And, and it's okay, right? I'm, there is no judgment for being uncomfortable here. We all get to be uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable too, and now I'm just sharing my discomfort with you. Before you stone me, with uh, the pens that you have in the seats? I don't know. That would be ugly. Let me remind you, friends, let me remind you that this isn't the first time that this turnabout strategy has been used to wake up someone from something they can't see in themselves. It's not the first time. Amos does it, and so does Isaiah. But the most famous, uh, famousest, there's a word, the, the most famousest, Example of this in all of Scripture is David and the prophet Nathan. You know that story? 2 Samuel 12, Nathan confronts David after he's raped Bathsheba and murdered her husband. Nathan, what does he do? He creates a caricature of a stereotypical, powerful, greedy thief who steals his neighbor's only sheep for himself. And what does this do to David? It makes him furious. It makes him furious. In fact, verse 5 of 2 Samuel 12 says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. What does verse 17 say? Nathan says to David, you, you are that man. You are that man. Friends, when Paul says in Romans 2 verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Paul is in a sense saying, you are that man that I just described in Romans 1, verse 18 through 32. You're the same one. It's a trap. Paul is doing for his fellow Jewish Christians what Nathan was doing for David. Waking them up to the reality that if they choose to live by the measure of law-keeping, then guess what? then by their own judgmentalism, they too have broken the law and are subject to the same judgment that they level against their neighbor. See, the whole problem in Rome was that Jewish Christians wanted to subject non-Jewish Christians, and this isn't all Jews. I have to like, put a caveat in here. We need to be careful about how we talk about this. But a particular group of Jewish Christians wanted to submit another group of non-Jewish Christians 
to their definition of holiness, their rules, their laws, their way of life. And the reason that they wanted to do this was because that they assumed that Gentiles were in more danger of judgment than they were because by nature they are idolaters who are inferior to them because they deny the truth about God. You know what those people are like. You know how they do. And Paul's exposing it. See, for, for these particular Jewish followers of Jesus, the bad things that Gentiles do, all the things that Paul ticks off at the latter part of chapter 1, all of those things just confirm their bias. You know what confirmation bias is, right? It's when someone does a bad thing in your group and they receive, by rights, the benefit of the doubt. They're extenuating circumstances. They had a bad day. They didn't mean it. You know what I mean? Like, we automatically assume the best about them, that this is an anomaly in their character. But if someone's from a group that you don't identify with, that you have biases against, well, when they do something bad, or by nature are something bad, well, then it just confirms the conception that you had about people like them. And the Christians in Rome aren't the only ones with confirmation bias problems, family. They're not the only ones. We have them too. Plenty of them. We have them against the poor versus the rich. When a rich person commits the, a crime, we don't indict all rich people as being evil. But when a poor person does a crime, we say, well, that's just how the poor are. They take advantage of the system. We do this with people of color versus white people. When a white person is stopped on the side of a road, we don't automatically assume that they're guilty. But if we drive by a car that has a black driver in it, we go, ah, they must have drugs. We do this with native-born people versus immigrants. We assume that Mexico sends us their worst. When statistically speaking, native-born people commit 10 times the crime per capita than immigrants. We do this with gay people versus heteronormative people. We assume things about their morality that we would never assume about a straight person. Most of the time, friends, this is, I, I bring up these examples not to shame anyone, but to say that we are not often aware of the work that these biases are doing to shape our assumptions and our opinions of people. We just aren't. They operate underneath the waterline of our consciousness, but they do work just the same. In other words, we're a lot like the Jewish Christians in this community who had a confirmation bias about non-Jewish people, that they are the root of all evil. And Paul is breaking the spell that they're under. In fact, that's why he, he transitions to the kindness of the Lord in verse 4. He says, do you, do, do you want to show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you, you who have confirmation biases against these people, to lead you to repentance? to get you to see your own heart. 
So he's saying God has, God has accepted those dirty pagans without them needing to become like you pious religious folks. How's that for a line? And so don't show contempt for God's kindness extended to them. In fact, receive his kindness to those that you despise as a gift to lead you to repentance so that you might rethink the grounds on which your acceptance is secured. It's not because you've been a Jewish person or because you've been a good person or a law-keeping person. It's simply a gift of the grace of God because he chose to extend his kindness to you too. And so take it, take his kindness to them as an opportunity to renew your minds too. Paul's point is not to bring shame on a different group of people. He's showing them how both Jew and Gentile, lawkeeper and lawbreaker, good and bad are in the same boat, and he's inviting them and us to see that both are in Christ. That it's okay that they are who they are because God rectifies the ungodly. He accepts the unrighteous. He purifies the unclean. And so now everyone is subject to Jesus' care and his kindness. Both the ungodly and those who judge them. You all are part of the people that God has set right, including the people that he's leading to repentance with his kindness now. Friends, the good news is that God is so committed to making peace that he will lovingly and directly confront our biases and our judgments and our prejudices. There's room for everyone in new creation. And because of that, there's no room for judgment. So today we're invited to compassionately reckon with our own assumptions because all are subject to the kindness of God. Let that kindness lead you to repentance so that you might become the kind of person that stands up even for those who are judged unfairly. This is what Jesus did for you and me. Let's do it for others too. We're going to respond here in a second with the question, what biases and presumptions are at work in your heart? Who do you deem less worthy than you? And will you reckon with the judgmentalism that may be at work in your own heart? Now, one area that comes to mind to me that I can't not address because Paul brings it up at the end of chapter one is the issue of LGBTQ people. This verse, verses, two of them, are and have been weaponized against people to clobber them that they are constantly talked about as being bad and hopelessly lost under condemnation. And for most of my Christian life, I, I have not have eyes, I've not had eyes to see the way that this has been used as a weapon against people. It needs to be said that here and elsewhere, every time that we look to the Bible to speak to a contemporary issue, we have to ask, what is the rhetorical shape of the passage that we're looking at? We can't just parachute in, yank one verse out of the context, and say, yep, this confirms my bias. 
Because what ends up happening is that the work that was meant to do is lost. And what and the work that ends up being done is something that the author, in this case Paul, never intended to be done. Paul names same-sex erotic relations as degraded human behavior. Yes. But he brings it up not to condemn them, but to bait a group of Christians in Rome who are satisfied with the thought that God will judge people like them. It's a strategy to whip up their judgmentalism, and he does this so that he can turn on them and expose the problem in them that they are passing judgment on other people, particularly those bad Gentiles. Romans 128 is not a weapon in our current culture war. It gets used that way all the time. But it's not what Paul meant to do. And if we use it that way, friends, then the results are tragic. People get hurt, abused, excluded, and even killed when we mishandle the Bible. Studies, in fact, show that suicide rates for every demographic go down as people are involved in a healthy church community, save one demographic. Can you guess which one it is? Suicide rates go up for them. The longer that they are in a community of faith, the more they internalize the narrative that they are the worst of the worst and without any hope of salvation. It is a tragic way, family, that the church has used this passage against people. It has consequences, dire ones, and we need to reckon with that. This is why I say all the time, how we read the Bible is just as important as that we read the Bible. If we don't take the rhetorical context just as seriously as we take the words themselves, then people suffer harm. Secondly, as we respond, we have to remember that whatever measuring stick that we use to determine someone else's goodness, acceptance, status, that stick will be used to measure you. For decades, the evangelical church has made a big deal about sex. All kinds of energy has been spent policing people's private parts in the church. Uh, purity culture, modesty culture, we had a lot to say about it. And it's had a huge impact on the way that people have viewed their own bodies and their own sexuality and the amount of guilt and shame that they carry around in social situations. This is the stick that we've used to measure other people's morality for a long, long time. Is it any wonder then that the thing that's killing the church's witness today is sexual abuse by the very leaders who spend their energy denouncing others for sexual sins. Is it any shock? It shouldn't be. That the very thing that we police in others becomes our un undoing because we never bother to take the log out of our own eye first. Friends, the stick you use to measure others is the stick that's used against you. And I think Paul would say to us, as he does to his fellow Jews, even in this there is good news. 
because you don't need measuring sticks anymore. You don't need them. You get to lay them down because in Christ, God's kindness and mercy have appeared. God isn't using the law as a measuring stick against your life, so you're free to lay it down. The ones that you use for others, the ones that you use for yourself, God has an inexhaustible supply of grace ready to be poured out into your life. Wouldn't you prefer to live from and extend the kindness of the Lord than to be trapped in a cycle of judgment? Doesn't that sound better than policing everyone and everything? So as we respond today, let's reckon with our own hearts. Let's take the log out of our own eyes. Who are we tempted to measure and why? Who do we deem as less worthy and why? And where have we fallen prey to the enslaving cycle of judgmentalism ourselves? Good news today is that God is so committed to making peace that he confronts us directly, lovingly, with our biases and prejudices. There's room for everyone in new creation, and so there's no room for judgment. Today, we're invited to compassionately reckon with our assumptions around who's bad and who's good, who's in and who's out, who's, who's got God's good graces and who doesn't. All are subject to the kindness of the Lord. Let's let that kindness lead us to repentance, even as we stand up for those who are judged unfairly. This is what God does for us in Christ. Amen? Amen. God, make it so. We bear our hearts to you. If we feel condemned, it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Be kind to us as we look at our own faults and failures, as we look at the ways that we've failed our brothers and sisters, as we look at the ways that we have not been a generous representation of your love. Thank you, God, that the ground of our acceptance is not based in how we've performed. We are welcome to stand before you, to come to the tables alongside everyone who wishes to know this kindness. May we receive it for ourselves and may we extend it to all. In Jesus' name, amen.